0: Today's Gospel lesson comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 4 through 42. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say, four months more, then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. The Gospel of the Lord Author of Life, we thank you for your word, and we ask that as we reflect upon it, your spirit would be with us to transform us in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. There is a lot going on in this morning's message. There's a whole conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. A brief interlude with the disciples as the Samaritan woman exits the scene to go evangelize. A whole nother lesson is given to the disciples, followed by the return of the woman with a crowd of people before it all finishes with a town full of Samaritans experiencing the revelation of recognizing Jesus as the Christ. As with any of the gospel accounts where Jesus interacts with a foreign woman, there are questions that could be asked about race and gender. We could also dig into the importance of this message being received by the Samaritans, who are simultaneously ancient enemies of the people of Judah and their closest kin. But the thread that I want to follow through all of this is what Jesus has to say about living water and the food that sustains him. If you remember a few weeks ago when we watched Jesus fend off the temptations in the desert, we saw him state that bread alone is not enough to live on. Once again, we see that same theme appearing. When Jesus offers to give the Samaritan woman water, she is confused by where he thinks he will find water without a bucket. They are at a well that went all the way back to their ancestor Jacob. But without the right tools, there's no way Jesus could retrieve the water from the well. Likewise, his disciples are confused when they return with food for him to eat, and he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The food that Jesus was talking about wasn't the kind of fare that fills our stomachs, but the kind of meal that fills our souls. Since this lesson confused even the disciples, I figured rather than assume that I could explain it, I would share with you this morning some examples of what this has looked like in the life of the Church. What better place to begin today than with the life of St. Patrick? In America, St. Patrick's Day has largely become a celebration of corned beef, drunkenness, and green everything, from beer to milkshakes to clothes but these celebrations do little to actually honor the patron saint of Ireland. We don't know much about when Patrick was alive, but his autobiography tells us a little bit about what his life was like. Patrick, or as he called himself, Patricius, was born in Roman-influenced Britain. His father was a leading member of their community and a deacon in the church. His grandfather was a priest. When he was around 16 years old, Patrick was captured by Irish slavers and taken into captivity for the next six years of his life. In his book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, author Thomas Cahill describes what Patrick's life was like during that time. He writes, We know that he did have two constant companions, hunger and nakedness, and that the gnawing in his belly and the chill on his exposed skin were his worst sufferings, acutely painful presences that could not be shaken off. Like many another in impossible circumstances, he began to pray. He had never before paid attention to the teachings of his religion. He tells us that He didn't really believe in God, and that he found priests foolish. But now, there was no one to turn to but the God of his parents. Cahill then quotes Patrick, who wrote of this turn toward God, saying, Tending flocks was my daily work, and I would pray constantly during the daylight hours. The love of God and the fear of Him surrounded me more and more. And faith grew, and the Spirit was roused, so that in one day I would say as many as a hundred prayers, and after dark nearly as many again. Even while I remained in the woods or on the mountain, I would wake and pray before daybreak, through snow, frost, rain. Nor was there any sluggishness in me, such as I experience nowadays, because then the spirit within me was ardent. Eventually, Patrick escaped his life of slavery to freedom. One day he heard a voice telling him that his hungers had been rewarded and that there was a ship awaiting him. Patrick's early life clearly shows us that the bread of life is something other than the usual food that we know. Through starvation and exposure to the elements, the will of God sustained Patrick as a young man. When Patrick returned home, he studied the Christian faith that had sustained him in the wilderness. But within a few years, he had a vision calling him back to Ireland. It may seem crazy to return to the place where you had been in slavery, but Patrick submitted to the will of God. At first, he encountered resistance to the message of the gospel, but eventually he transformed the country that became his adopted home. Across Ireland he set up bishoprics to serve the scattered communities. He railed against the slave trade. By the time he died, Christianity had gained an indelible foothold in Ireland, because Patrick chose to eat the food of God's will. Not all of us can be a St. Patrick. In fact, few in the life of the Church have been called in such a way. But there are examples that come to mind that are perhaps closer to home for most of us. Last week, near the end of our worship service, we received word that Ruth, one of our own, had been admitted to the hospital in Saginaw because of a brain bleed. Tuesday, I called and talked to her son, who was just walking out the door to pick her up from the hospital. He shared with me not just an update on Ruth's health. She was fortunate that they caught the damage soon enough that it could just be treated with medicine but he also offered an update on how she had managed the trial of going through three CAT scans while hospitalized. Struggling with her nerves, Ruth started singing hymns and reciting scripture to herself. It calmed her to seek that living water of God's word, and her faithful reliance on the Spirit served as a witness to the medical staff that were observing her during her tests. Finally, In our present moment, I am reminded of the English mystic Julian of Norwich. Julian lived in England during a time of great upheaval. The bubonic plague had devastated the island twice in her lifetime, once when she was a child around six years old, and again when she was around eighteen years old. The first time the plague struck in her life, it's estimated to have killed as many as half the people living in England, and the second time it killed another 20% of those who survived. As you can imagine, this caused the social life of the country to be upended. When Julian was 30 years old, she was brought low by a different illness. As she lay on what was presumed to be her deathbed, she received a series of visions or showings while staring at a crucifix. Julian recovered from her near-death experience and wrote down her revelations for others to read. Julian was also an anchorite. She lived in a cell attached to a church. Her only contact with the outside world through a window where she would counsel visitors who came seeking her wisdom. As we practise self isolation out of love for the most vulnerable among us, perhaps we can find comfort in the words of Julian. In her thirteenth showing, she writes about her questioning of sin. She wondered why, if God wanted us to be pure and holy, God would have allowed sin to enter into the world. This is what she records as the response. Jesus, who in this vision informed me of everything needful to me, answered with these words and said, Sin is befitting, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. In this unadorned word, sin, our Lord brought to mind everything in general which is not good, and the shameful scorn, and the uttermost abnegation that he bore for us in this life, and his dying, and all the pains and sufferings in the body and spirit of all his creatures. For we are all in part set at naught, and we shall be set at naught, following the example of our Master Jesus until we are fully purged, that is to say, until our mortal flesh is made as nothing, and all our inward feelings which are not truly good. And in contemplating this, together with all the sufferings that ever were or ever shall be, I understand Christ's passion as the greatest and most surpassing suffering. And all this was shown in an instant and quickly turned into consolation for our good Lord did not wish the soul to be frightened by this ugly sight. But I did not see sin, for I believe it has no kind of substance nor share of being, nor could it be recognized except by the suffering it causes. And as it seems to me, this suffering is something that exists for a while, because it purges us, and makes us know ourselves, and ask for mercy. For the passion of our Lord is a comfort to us against all this, and that is his blessed will. And because of the tender love which our good Lord has for all of us who shall be saved, he comforts us readily, and sweetly meaning this, it is true that sin is cause of all this suffering. But all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. These words were said very tenderly, indicating no kind of blame for me or for anyone who will be saved. So it would be most unkind to blame God or marvel at him because of my sin, since he does not blame me for sin. To summarize, as Julian lay near death, she opened herself up to God's will, and Jesus Christ appeared to her to show her that in her suffering she was joined with him in his suffering upon the cross. In suffering upon the cross, Christ is joined with all of us in our sufferings, which are the result of living in a world afflicted by sin. But the heart of this message, the word of assurance for which Julian has become known, is that all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. This is the lesson that Jesus gave at that well long ago. The sufferings of this life come and go. None of them are permanent, but the love of God lasts eternally. Drink from the living waters, eat of the bread of life, and know that all shall be well. Amen. And now would you please pray with me. God of the cross, comfort us in our afflictions. Speak tenderly to us in our moments of questioning. Feed us on your word, and let us drink deeply from your love. Amen.